0: Ephesians chapter two. There we go. Uh, If you got your Bibles, Ephesians chapter two. We're going to be looking. um, The bulletin says verses eight and nine, and that's where we'll uh, spend a good bit of time. But we're going to do verses one through ten. It's kind of a whole unit. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through ten. Suddenly, all the print this morning is double small for me. I don't know what's going on, but so I'll do my best. Um, All right, let's read the word together. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, Father, uh, we pause now and we want to give you thanks for your word this morning. And uh, and Father, as we come to it, we pray that our meditations on it and the words of my lips concerning it would, would be acceptable in your sight. And Father, we pray that this word would plow our hearts and Father, that we would leave having been changed by it. And indeed, Father, that in due time it would produce a harvest that you've intended for it. We pray it all in Jesus' name, Amen. So we're we've just started. A, we're a couple of weeks into a, a series that we're doing on uh, texts that have uh, changed your lives, or uh, texts that have been monumental in the course of church history, and um, and this is one of those passages, um, Ephesians chapter two verses 1 through 10, one of the passages that has really changed the landscape of the church uh, when it was recovered or uncovered again after uh, a somewhat lengthy um, uh, time period in the Reformation, about 1,200 years. Um, And so uh, we want to break it down this morning. We're going to break it down into four parts, all right? And uh, because the text kind of clearly breaks itself down. And so we're going to talk about uh, what you were, What you are, how you got here, and then finally, what does it mean? Kind of a so what at the end. So what you were, what you are, how you got here, and so what. So let's just begin there in that uh, first section. The first section is comprised really in the first three verses, all right? And that gives us a, a description, if you will, of what we were. Who were we when we were without Christ? But Before the gospel opened our eyes, before, you know, whatever this transformation is that happens for a person to go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, what did that look like? And if you look, the Apostle Paul just right out of the gate says, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins. The word that he uses there is the word necros, which you're probably somewhat familiar with with in in the English language, and it actually really means without life. It, It is descriptive of a corpse in other places. And so the Apostle Paul is saying here, as for you, you were without life in your transgressions and sins. Now, we know that he doesn't mean physical life, so he must mean spiritual life. And that is what he is describing. He is describing us spiritually before faith, before we... However this transpires, and we're going to talk about that in a couple minutes, but but however faith happens for us, however it is that we uh, (coughs) are converted, before that conversion takes place, the Apostle Paul describes us as dead. Now, down through ages, men have... Talked about this and written about this, and and it's some often the the, you know it's 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 a discussion. What is a person when they are born? And we're talking about them morally. What kind of a moral agent are they at birth? Are they a blank slate ready to be written on by you know the influence of people around them? Is there something already written on that? So are they you know. Near death, are, are they are they bad morally and in need of uh, a lot of help, or are they dead morally? And the apostle Paul here and in other places makes it very clear that without Christ, in the state of just having been born and nothing else uh, transpires in our life, we are spiritually dead. Now. The good news of grace is not nearly so amazing and so good if you don't understand the dead part, right? If you have some notion that we are just, you know, we're, we're beat up and battered and kind of broken, but, but we still have a little bit of that spark in us and so we can muster it up and go and, and do good, then grace doesn't look nearly so amazing, does it? But if we are, and if if you understand us as the Apostle Paul places us here, we are dead. There's no life. There's no inclination towards anything good morally. We are dead in our transgressions and and sins. That is our state apart from Christ. And then something happens. Look at verse 4. <clears throat> and that something is often described as, but God. But because of His great love for us, God. That is the something that happens. That is the movement that takes place. The movement isn't isn't on your part. You didn't move. You did nothing. Why? Because you are dead. Very good. You're dead, right? So you're not moving, you're not you're not inching your way towards God. You're not raising your hand or walking. You're not doing anything at this point. You're dead. And that's why verse four is so amazing. But before we get there, right, I want us, before we get all the way into uh, this next section about what you are, I want to finish about what you were. Because what you were and your understanding of what you were before faith dramatically impacts the way you will interact with others. Right. If you understand yourself to have been dead and made alive by God's intervention in your life, and it's all God, right? He's the one that moved towards you. It's His grace. It's His mercy. It's His faith. It's His salvation that He has made available to you. And, and when you understand that, right, when you understand just how dead you were and how amazing God's movement towards you is, that has a dramatic impact on the way that you look at others, view others, interact with others who don't believe what you believe, who aren't there yet, who haven't had their eyes open to the gospel. When they see and hear and think about the gospel, right, they reject it. It's anathema to them. It's a stumbling block. It's too simple. They have all sorts of reasons why they can't receive the gospel. And sometimes we look out at the world and we look out at people and we how can you not get it? It's so simple, it's so easy, and you just receive it and it's just a gift and Jesus loves you and you know you know, and sometimes we do it with scorn how foolish you are. And look, we do it at the world at large, right? Oh, how could, you know, they're, they're so blind and, and yes, right? They're spiritually dead, exactly as you and I were at some point along the way. And so we look out at the world and, and, and we're critical and let's just be honest. We're judgmental, okay? And, and we, we are not kind and, and we're not gracious. but god was there's a um there's a parable that jesus told in luke 13 i'm going to read it for you it's very short it begins in verse 6 luke 13 verse 6 jesus says this a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and he found none and he said to the vine dresser look for 3 years now i have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Are you with me? So it's a parable. It's a man. He had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He comes by. He sees it. There's no fruit on it. He says to the vine dresser, look, I've been coming by here for three years, and that tree hasn't produced anything. I want you to cut it down. And the vine dresser answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and I put on manure. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, then you can cut it down. See, we're that impatient passerby, right? The impatient one, look, you know, no fruit, you know, it's worthless, get rid of it, let's cut it out, let's chop it down, let's be done with it already and be done with the world and and let's hold on dresser says let me put some manure on it you know manure works rather slowly over time and he's just asking for right let's let's be patient here here's what eugene peterson says he says We have just come across something that offends us, some person who is useless to us or useless for the kingdom, and they're just taking up the ground, and we lose patience, and either physically or verbally, we get rid of him or her, chop him down, chop her down, chop it down. We solve kingdom problems by amputation. The manure story interrupts our noisy, aggressive, problem-solving mission in a quiet voice. The parable says, hold on, not so fast Wait a minute. Give me some more time. Let me put some manure on this tree. Manure, he says. Manure is no quick fix. It has no immediate results. It's going to take a long time to see if it makes any difference. If it's results, if, if it is results that we're after, chopping down a tree is just the thing. We clear the ground, we make it ready for a fresh start. Spreading manure carries none of that exhilaration. It's not dramatic work, it's not glamorous work, it's not work that gets anyone's admiring attention. Manure is a slow solution. Still, when it comes to doing something about what is wrong in the work uh, uh, in the world, work Jesus is best known for his fondness for the minute, the invisible, the quiet, the slow. Yeast, salt, seeds, light and manure the illustration the parable right implores us asks us says to us let him work right exactly the way he worked in your life exactly the way the but god happened for you whenever it happened for you you didn't you didn't choose that You didn't implore Him to come make a difference in your life. He did. He moved towards you. And so, right, that understanding, we were dead, but God. When you look around at the world and you look around at people you know, and they're dead, just pray that there's a but God coming for them instead of rushing to chop them down And to throw him into the fire. Let him be at work. And pray for that. And ask the Lord to be that and do that for them. So what you were, dead in your trespasses and sins. What you are. Look at this. But God. He moved. He did it. Paul uses three verbs here to describe what has happened to us. So verse 4 he says, But because of his great love for us, God who was rich in mercy. What did He do? He first made us alive. And He hits it again, right? He made us alive, what? Even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And He's not going to let that go. He wants us to remember. Even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, He made us alive. It is by grace you have been saved. Verse 6. And... He raised us up with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So he did three things. He made us alive, he raised us up, and he seated us in the heavenly realms. Now, that happens in the blink of an eye. We go from dead to reigning. We go from dead in our sins and transgressions to being made alive with Christ, raised with Christ, and seated with Christ in His reign. Now, you have to scratch your head for a moment here and go, okay, hold on. I mean, we're talking just a couple of verses. And all of this is tied together, Right? He makes us alive. He raises us up. He seats us with Christ. How can that be? And the reformers asked this question. How can it be that we go so quickly from dead, dead to alive, alive? And the answer is in the text. It isn't you. It's you in him. It's you in Christ, right? See, you're alive. How? In Christ, you're raised up in Him. You're seated with Him, and that's what that's what they've often referred to. And theologians often talk about the, we're, the union with Christ. We're unified with Him. We're joined to Him. What is His is ours. And what was ours became His. And He paid the penalty for it. So a couple of weeks ago, we saw this in Romans 1, 16 and 17, remember? Where we saw that the righteousness of Christ becomes ours, and our sin becomes His, and He pays the penalty, and then God lifts us up and he treats us as if we had committed every righteous deed that Christ himself had committed. And now Paul is saying nearly the same thing, but differently here. And he's saying we are so connected to Jesus, so identified with him, what happens to him happens to us. And so as we are joined with him, how? He's going to tell us again in a, in a minute. By faith, what is Jesus' is ours. And Jesus was made alive. And Jesus was raised up. And Jesus, Jesus was seated on the heavenly throne. And so, because we are identified, identified and connected to Him, God treats us. And we receive the same benefit that He does. That's the most amazing truth of the gospel. That is the core of the gospel. The gospel isn't that you somehow are just infused with this super, you know, you become Mighty Mouse now and you run around and you do good things and you're a good person. It's that He looks at you through the person and work of Jesus Having credited that to you, he now sees you as if he sees his son. And that's how you can go from death to life so rapidly. So Martin Luther and the, and someone asked me about this a couple of weeks ago as they were leaving, they said, so, Saint But we're all, we're talked about in the Bible as saints, right? The letters are written to saints and we're, we're often identified as saints, but we're also sinners. And, and that, that's exactly the two halves. So the reformers said, Luther, John Calvin, the other guys, they, they said, look, this truth is there, right? We are at the same time saints and sinners. The Latin, you've got to use, you know, if you know a Latin phrase, you have to throw it out. Simul eosus et peccator. Simultaneously saints and sinners. Because you ask the you know, the question kind of comes, okay? He, he's looking at me as if I'm righteous, but I know I'm still sinning. How can that be? And it is because you are counted as righteous in Christ. Because of what he's done. And that is what you are. What you were, dead. What you are, alive in Christ. And how you got there. Verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, So that no one can boast. A lot of ink has been spilled on this verse, and you can see why. It's by grace you have been saved, through faith. And then the question is, what is the this and this? What is the this which is not from yourselves? It is, is it faith? That's the closest antecedent. Is it faith or is it a combination of for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And here's, here's what I would say. It doesn't matter. <laughs> in the end, it doesn't matter. If it's solely faith that he's talking about, then your faith is clearly a gift. If it's the entire clause, then your faith and his grace are clearly a gift. It, it really, it really doesn't make that much difference in the end. Because It's all, if it's all bound up and it's a gift of God and it's coming to you, then it's His gift. It's from Him. It's His. What's really important is what Paul says at the very end there. It is the gift of God. And then verse 9, not by what? Works. It's not by works. So that no man can boast. So he sucks boasting out, right? Now, let's go back to the first section where I talked about understanding who you were. You understand who you were and you understand how you were made alive. Do you have anything to boast about? I mean, this would be like going in and a doctor performing a quadruple bypass on you and you come out the other side and you brag about how great a job you did on your heart. This doesn't make any sense. You weren't the physician. You didn't do the operation. He did. And in this instance, you didn't do anything. He did. He is the one who changed you. He is the one who bestowed his grace on you. He is the one that has showed you his love and his grace and his his favor. Why? So that no one can boast. All boasting is eliminated. And again, that is that element that moves us in a gracious direction towards our non-believing friends and family and and folks who just haven't gotten it yet. And that's where we want to pray for that but God moment for them where they see and know and their heart is softened. For what you were, dead, what you are alive, and how did you get there? By God's grace. No merit involved. By God's grace, through the vehicle of faith, all of them, a gift of God. I don't know about you, that's hard. It sucks you right out of the equation. Because however it is that you woke up, However it is you came to to grace, you know, at some point, yes, you exercised that faith. But even that faith, Paul's saying, was a gift of God. So you can't boast that somehow, right, I've really made a, a smart choice here, a good decision. You should make it too. I've told you that. I'm, I'm sure I've told you the story. Maybe I haven't. Uh, my good friend Greg and I, early on, we're... Um, we were we were trying to you know, I don't know, we were trying to be faithful I guess. But we were spending time at a local pool pool hall in Montgomery and it was down kind of in the south side of Montgomery and, and so we would go down there and it was a pretty rough place. Uh I wouldn't probably go today. But back then I was young and dumb and um, and I didn't have a family. So like, uh, but Greg and I would go down to the pool hall and we would have uh we'd We probably had an adult beverage, and we played pool with guys at the pool hall, and and then what we did is we prayed as we went in. Lord, you know we want an opportunity to share the gospel, and I'll never forget one night we went in, we were playing pool, and we got to you know jostling and talking and everything, and the next thing you know, the next thing you knew we were in the parking lot, and and Greg reminds me this day. I mean I was pleading with the guy, you know just do it, just Just, you know, what do you have to lose? Uh, you know, just, just say the prayer, you know, and I'm telling this guy, just, just say a prayer for Jesus and trust him and, you know, and and the guy, I don't don't want to, and I said, well, what do you got to lose? You don't have anything to lose. And, and, um, I, I was really trying to just seal the deal, you know, and, uh, probably not a very good salesman, but because I can't, I can't sell it, you know, he can't buy it if he doesn't have the ability. And and he didn't. And so no amount of persuasion. And you've probably been there, right? Where you wanted to persuade someone, but but you couldn't. And it's all God's grace. All right, let's do so what. So So what? Verse 10. And you don't want to get these backwards, right? The so what is... He created you, you're God's handiwork, created, again, you see that phrase? In Christ Jesus, because that's how you're made alive. So you're in Christ Jesus, what? To do good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. Beginning to end, A to Z, God is involved in your salvation. Okay? You were dead in your transgressions and sins. He moved towards you. He made you alive in Christ. He has treated you as if you did every good thing Christ ever did. And then, oh, by the way, he has good works that he has prepared in advance for you to do. And that's why the reformers could say, right, we're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Our faith transitions into a life of works. But don't flip those. Don't get those reversed where it's a life of works that transitions us and brings us to faith. Because that's not, that's not the order. And be careful, right? He prepared good works for us to do. Sometimes those good works begin to take on a life of their own in us. And we begin to think, right, those are the modes and means. Those are the ways in which you know we uh, we keep this relationship with God on track no it, he's not going to love you anymore because you've done x, y, and z because he loves you in Christ Jesus already. it's his love, and so you're going to be doing these good works. be careful that you don't inflate him when i was a when I was a kid um, my dad retired from the Air Force and we moved back to Marble. Marble Hill, Missouri, population 900. Small little town in, in, uh, in the boot heel of Missouri. And, um, I went to the same school my mom and dad went to. And I actually had the same shop teacher that my mom and dad had had. Don Lacks, who's still with us. Um, I don't know if he's teaching shop anymore, but, um, but an amazing guy. And uh, and I had Don Lax. Well, my dad was a country boy. Okay, I mean he went down the train bridge shooting snakes and turtles and all that kind of stuff every day. And you know he, he was a he was just a country boy. And uh, and Don Lax was a country man. And he loved my dad. And my dad was great in shop, and he learned tons of stuff. I was a city boy. We moved there from California. Okay, and Don saw right away that I was not like my daddy. Um, and he, he said that quite frequently, actually. <laughs> um, he, uh, when I cut my thumb on the table saw, for instance. But one of the things we did in shop class was we, we made wallets. Okay. It was leather working. So, um, we took the, it was a, like a kit sort of a thing. I, and, and, except it was flat. And then you, you took all the little deals and you did the carving on the outside of the wallet. Some of you have done this. All right. And I did it. But I was a city boy, remember? It wasn't pretty. But I did that wallet. And I gave that wallet to my dad. And my dad carried that wallet for a long time. He he might still be carrying that wallet. I haven't seen him pull it out in a while. But for a long time, my dad carried that wallet. And he used it. That was his primary wallet. And so he would pull that out. and, And I would see it. And... And I remember when I gave it to him, I thought, that's a special piece of work right there, right? (laughs) But, you know, as I got older and my dad would pull that wallet out, I would realize that was really bad work. (laughs) And so it wasn't so much what I had done, right? It wasn't so much what I was doing. It, It had a lot more to do with the love of my dad for me than my good efforts for him. Okay, so when you think about verse 10, and you think about it, he's prepared good works for you to do in advance, absolutely. Don't don't get too hung up on those though, okay? They're pretty rough still around the edges, and there's going to be a lot there, and and for him to receive them is going to require a lot of love and a lot of grace and a lot of mercy still yet. But guess what? but God, right? Rich in mercy, abounding in love and mercy for you. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Your Word this morning. What a powerful passage for us to come to. A passage that has awakened so many hearts and lives and minds down through the ages. And Father, we thank You that You've used it even in ours to remind us what an amazing Great God, you are loving, merciful, kind, generous towards us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Father, as we leave today, let us soak up that grace, be reminded of how amazing you are and all you've done for us. Father, let us deal gently with our brothers and sisters, friends, and loved ones who don't yet know that grace and mercy. May they see it in us before they hear it and receive it from you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.